everyone and welcome to another episode of The World of Sharks, a podcast all about sharks, rays and the ocean brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host Isla and every episode I sit down with brilliant experts in shark science, conservation, storytelling and education to take you on a deep dive into a different part of the wonderful world of sharks. This year, the Save Our Seas Foundation celebrates our 20th anniversary. For the last two decades, we've been so proud to support innovative and world-leading projects around the world, working to protect sharks and rays, whether that be through science, storytelling or education. We are also proud to have three centres dedicated to learning about sharks and rays and sharing that knowledge with everybody. In celebration, the World of Sharks podcast will be speaking with each one of those centres, starting today with the Save Our Seas Foundation Shark Education Centre. In this episode, we are exploring a very important topic in conservation, which is how to encourage and support the next generation to protect and care for our ocean and all the animals that call it home, including sharks. Young people will inherit the natural world And while we hope that they will learn the joy and the love of nature, we also know that they will take on a lot of the problems that we have unfortunately left behind. In many ways, the youth of today are more clued in on this than ever, which is causing its own problems. Cases of eco-anxiety in children and young adults have skyrocketed, and especially in developing countries, young people are struggling with their mental health as they face an uncertain future. But there are also a lot of other challenges facing children all around the world. For example, the United Nations estimates that one in six children is living in extreme poverty. Severe inequalities and political instability directly affect children's access to education, healthcare and nutrition, which are all factors to consider when we're talking about the next generation, the environment and calls to action. So these are all things we're going to talk about today and we're also going to talk about how we can encourage and support and nurture the next generation to learn about the issues facing the natural world and also, you know, adopt responsibility to help solve some of those issues while allowing them to still be children and to still have fun and to play, which is so, so important in young development. And we're discussing all of these things with our fabulous guest, Dr. Clover Mavin, who is director of the Save Our Seas Foundation Shark Education Centre. Established in 2008, the Shark Education Centre could not be in a more perfect place. It is nestled in a beautiful corner of the iconic False Bay in Cape Town, South Africa, which is probably about as sharky a place as you can get. It also overlooks Dalebrook Marine Protected Area, which houses the unique marine ecosystems found in these waters like the kelp forest and the rocky shore. The Shark Education Centre is dedicated to helping children and adults from the surrounding communities to develop a healthy respect for sharks and the ocean, and learn more about the marine environment through play and state-of-the-art exhibits. 
This includes the general public, as well as school groups, who the team guide through education programs to help build their confidence and knowledge around the ocean. I was able to visit a wee while ago, and even as an adult, I was so incredibly excited to go in, because <laughs> the whole centre is just absolutely covered in murals, so you look like you're under the sea, even on dry land. There's sharp sculptures everywhere, there's a touch pool, interactive exhibits, and the ceiling even looks like you're beneath the crest of a wave. It's just the coolest. And it's also filled with loads of amazing people who absolutely love what they do. While I was there, I got to chat with Clover and talk about the work that she and the team do. As we'll talk about, many of the communities who the centre work with are under-resourced communities with their own unique challenges and histories to consider. But the team are so incredible and so passionate about what they do, and many of them are from the same communities. And you can see the kids' faces light up. And you can see the kids' faces light up when they're all lined up, ready to go to the beach. It's just an absolute joy to watch. We also talk about education and outreach more broadly, the importance of play, the power of hope, and navigating eco-anxiety, and perhaps most importantly of all, learning just as much from the younger generation than they do from us, if not more. Just before we dive into our episode, I just wanted to give a shout out to all the incredible education team, of course to Clover, who is featured in this episode, but also to Justine, Claire, Karen, Afikile, Logan, Wade, Lily and Danny. It's just so awesome to see the joy and the passion that all of you have and it's infectious. So this one is dedicated to all of you. Alrighty, grab your snorkels and your biggest smile and let's dive in to our episode. Hello Clover and welcome to the World of Sharks podcast. <laughs> Thank you Isla, it's good to be here. It's so good to be here because as listeners would have heard in the last episode with Pippa, I am lucky enough to be in beautiful Cape Town or Cork Bay even and we're actually not at the Shark Education Centre we're in our Airbnb but we have been at the Shark Education Centre and it's the first time I've seen it and it is just such a special place and we'll talk about it a little bit later on but no I'm so thrilled to be here and to be chatting all about education and inspiring the next generation of shark conservationists with you. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, uh-huh, mm. yeah, and it's not raining today. <laughs> there has to be one day when you're in South Africa rather than Scotland where it's not raining. <laughs> I know, but I was, I was saying to people earlier though that it's the rain here, it's proper rain. So it's not just in Scotland we get a lot of sort of drizzle, yeah. Well, as you'll know, because you grew up in Scotland, but yeah, but here it actually properly goes for it. And I quite like that. Yeah, it's funny, actually. I said to someone yesterday, and you'll, you'll get this with the Scottish references, but I said it, the weather's drich. But in Afrikaans, um, I'm going to get the Afrikaans wrong, but the word druch is dry. Oh, that's confusing. I know, exactly. It was the first time I'd come across it here as well, the difference. But anyway. Drich is such a good, it's Scots Gaelic, and I think it just kind of means like, damp and cold and miserable and it's such a perfect descriptive word for Scottish weather. Yeah. <laughs> it's not all that bad Scotland but there are quite a few days like that. We can have we can have sunny days we can have sunny days but but yeah it's been so beautiful here and it's so nice to so nice to be back. 
But as you'll know, because I know you, I know you listen to the podcast, we like to start and end the podcast with the same question. And our first question is always, do you have an experience in the ocean that stands out for you as, you know, special or memorable? Because I know I, I always ask people, what is your most memorable experience? And people really struggle with that because a lot of the people I speak to have been in the ocean a lot. So, but is there one in particular that stands out for you? So I really struggled with this question. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I thought of lots of times when I've had amazing experiences either in the water with sharks or taking children into the water and seeing their reactions. But actually, I've got two of my own children now, two girls, they're three and six. And actually now for me, the most memorable experiences for me are now seeing their joy as they discover the ocean. So recently we were down the Cape Peninsula in Cape Point Nature Reserve Mm -hmm. and for my PhD I studied crabs, (laughs) important piece of information, Um, not sharks (laughs) but crabs, (laughs) actually an invasive crab, the European shore crab which is commonly found um, across many of the British shores but I studied the crab here in South Africa and about how it's invasion in South Africa and lots of things down that route. But anyway, it had never been found during my PhD, which was not that long ago. I finished in 2018. It had never come round the Cape Peninsula because there's a bit of, bi- of a biogeographic barrier. So it had been found along the Atlantic seaboard, so on the kind of the other side of the Cape Peninsula, but never in the False Bay region. Mm-hmm. And actually, only three weeks ago, I was rock pooling with my kids in Cape Point, which is a, a protected area. Um, the marine it's a marine protected area and we found one of these crabs and actually another family pointed it out to me and they said oh have you seen the kid have you seen have have your kids seen the crab I'm like oh oh that's cool let's go over and have a look and then I kind of went off at a hole like oh my goodness it's a it's Carcinus manus it's a European shore crab it's not meant to be here it's never been found here before and I think this family thought I was a bit bonkers um but yeah for me and also the kids reaction because they kind of knew also about my studies and know I'm a bit obsessed with crabs as well as sharks <laughs> so they were also giving in a few facts and things as well so it was oh, quite nice. it was quite entertaining for me got to love a bit of crabs <laughs> so is that is that a bad thing and um, it well it is because so we're we're gonna this is gonna be a world of crabs <laughs> but <laughs> Sorry. Crabs are included in the world of sharks. It's funny. Um, we're renaming the podcast. Exploded yeah. crabs. Um, maybe not quite as appealing. Um, yeah. I'm sure there's some crab fans listening yeah. to this. But it, it had never been... Um, so because it's a marine protected area, where it had been found in Cape Town before were generally man-made areas. They were, it was mostly restricted to harbours, okay. which are not the most pristine environment in, in South Africa. It wasn't actually spreading outside of the, those harbour areas. So we weren't really concerned about the native flora and fauna. But obviously now that it is in a marine protected area and it's quite a, a pristine area, then yeah, there are other implications for the other species. It's quite a voracious predator, so especially on bivalves. Um, so yeah, it can have impacts. Um, there. So who do you call? <laughs> um, there's no crab busters, unfortunately. There were when I was doing my PhD. Um, oh, that was part of it. I had to try and see how feasible it was to eradicate crabs from mm-hmm. South Africa. And I did take out quite a few, over 30,000 of them, but no longer in that game. <laughs> I, I, I did send a message to my PhD supervisor and she said, and just 
checking whether it had been found there um, since my PhD and she said no. So yeah, they're going to keep an eye out for it and they're doing more studies in, in the marine protected areas this year. So hopefully they're going to see if they find any more. It was male, so f fingers crossed it wasn't. there were no pregnant females or anything and hopefully it was a once-off. Like fascinating, but also worrying <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. And that was only three weeks ago. Yeah. Jeez. Huh, fingers crossed. I know. Yeah, but you've never heard a story like that before. I haven't, no, no, but it's, it's amazing, yeah. Um, but you finished your PhD in 2018, but I kind of wanted to rewind a little bit and talk about your childhood growing up. And you obviously grew up in Scotland, which we've mentioned, relatively close to the to the ocean. Has the has the ocean played a big part? Did it play a big part in your childhood? Mm. So I we lived in the countryside, but we were probably about twenty minutes from the sea. Um, mm. But we spent a lot of our time outdoors. We didn't have a TV until I was thirteen. Um, <laughs> so my parents were big advocates in us just climbing around in the mud and climbing trees and um, being proper nature babies. And we were often either on the mountains, in the forests um, or at the beach. But obviously in Scotland it's not like going to the South African beach where people only go really when it's sunny, <laughs> which is a lot of the year to be fair. But I mean, like I was looking at pictures the other day of us on the beach in Scotland and we were there in full waterproofs, like, like thick clothes, like proper like what do you call those, those like sou'westers like wax layers of to keep the water from getting anywhere near us head to toe but yeah we spent a lot of our childhood on the beach in the sea yeah. even though it was very cold obviously yeah you kind of have well if we waited until it was sunny there you'd get in like two weeks of a year I think probably so you grew up next to the sea going to the sea and then what kind of led you down the path of marine science was it kind of something that you'd always thought about always wanted to do or was it kind of for me it was a bit of a surprise so about six months before I applied for UCAS is when I decided that I was going to go down that road but how was it for you? Yeah I kind of knew I always wanted to do something with animals um, so actually my undergrad and honours was in zoology actually not marine biology and then yeah I kind of I I started with zoology, but whenever I could, I always chose like marine marine subjects or marine kind of specialties and kind of extra stuff or go to do like a three month program over um, summer, over the summer months mm -hmm. that would have a marine link to it. So I think during my third year or second year summer, I went to Madagascar for three months and did a marine conservation project there. And then when I graduated with a um, zoology honours, there are not many jobs for zoology graduates and I was very lucky to get a job in a, a local aquarium. So kind of that really was when my marine experience was solidified there. Yeah. We had a large display that had raggedtooth sharks in it and we took people in diving with the raggies as well. And so that was kind of really the moment when shar sharks were first and foremost um, for me, they kind of became a little bit of an obsession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that was my next question actually is, was, like when was there a point that you decided that you wanted to work with sharks? Was it the ragged tooth that set you off? So when I was working at the aquarium in Scotland, I met a shark specialist who was visiting with his Scottish girlfriend and she had had some experience working on a on a white shark research boat in South Africa and he had a he had a cage diving company in South Africa and they basically convinced me to come out um, to South Africa for three months at the time and see some sharks in the wild. So yeah, I worked at the aquarium for just over a year and then I decided that I was going to try a three-month stint in South Africa and then it just kind of kept getting extended <laughs> and now it's 18 years later we're still we're still here <laughs> but yeah that was kind of the initial hook that got me 
that got me out here. Yeah, it's a pretty special place. It is, yeah. especially if you love sharks. Very over a hundred, over 125 different species of sharks. I know, it's amazing. I went for a day, I went for our, my first snorkel here yesterday and within 10 minutes we'd seen a pajama shark <laughs> and I lost my mind. And then I think I, I think it was a shy shark I saw. Um, but I also saw a, saw a shy shark within like the next five minutes or something. It's a very, very sharky place. But obviously, as regular listeners will know, not as sharky in terms of white sharks or uh, seven gills anymore because of the orca. But there are still many, many other species of shark that are still here and very much present. So we've kind of talked a little bit about working in an aquarium and moving to South Africa. And then I assume you did your PhD while you were here yeah. uh-huh and then how did that lead into your current role with the shark education center yeah so i actually did my master's and my phd here in in south africa so when i originally came out i kind of came for my three months and then actually i did go home back to scotland for actually only a week <laughs> and then i got a call um from a friend saying they were, he was doing a national geographic shoot did i want to come along and join him and kind of work a bit like a fixer for it um, so I came out again a week later and then I kind of went down a little bit of a wildlife film route where I did a, did that shoot for National Geographic and then I got involved with a wildlife film academy in Cape Town and I worked there for a year I think it was now. I was working as the course coordinator there. Through that course I met a wildlife filmmaker um, who had a small company in South Africa in Cape Town mm -hmm. and um, I worked for him as a researcher so checking current science and looking for potential stories but also as a production manager so kind of doing the managing of the practical side of things the bigger kind of picture of the company like managing shoots the budgets and kind of lots of life skills all in one there and then I from there I decided I wanted to go back and study and I did my master's at the University of Cape Town in conservation biology again with a marine kind of angle to it and then I, I worked also in an environmental company for a few years and kind of getting a lot of broader marine, South African marine base before doing my PhD at the University of Stellenbosch, also again in the marine invasion side, as we talked about earlier. So I got pregnant during my PhD, which is not advisable. Um, <laughs> In terms of your PhD, I mean, obviously it's great to have children, but in terms of your PhD plans, it's not advisable. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but then becoming a mother and wanting to share my passion for the ocean pushed me off on a more, on a different, a different angle, but using some of the skills that I'd learned with the wildlife film side of things in terms of the communicating, the science. But also I worked at a, I worked at a little school, helping with a little environmental program that they had. So I had experience working with, with young kids, but then also with the with the broader skills that I'd got from my previous jobs yeah it kind of it all came together kind of really when this job was offered to me at the at the Save Our Seas Foundation Shark Education Centre mm -hmm. yeah so now I'm the director here and we yeah I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit more about it um but yeah I've been now here for I've been at the Shark Centre now for four years over four years Now I did want to talk about the Shark Education Centre um, and I wanted to start off by talking about where it's located because it's located in a pretty special place. So can you describe for our listeners where it is? 
So we are the Save Our Seas Foundation Shark Education Centre is based in Cape Town, South Africa to mm -hmm. start with, so right at the bottom of, of the African continent. Particularly we're on the Cape Peninsula, um, which is which kind of goes down the west side of False Bay and we're right on the shore of, the, of a marine protected area. We've got the intertidal zone, um, the rocky shore right in front of us, which leads directly into the kelp forest, which is an amazing environment. Yeah, you can see from the windows of the Shark Education Centre, you can see right out onto Dalebrook. Yep, Dalebrook marine protected area, yeah. Uh -huh, and you can even see the kelp sort of floating on the surface. Yeah, yeah it's very cool. Um, and even and going into the centre as well, I was so excited as an adult. I can't imagine what it's like as a kid, but you've got all these murals, these amazing murals painted on the walls of like the rocky shore and there's shark art made out of recycled materials all over the walls. And even I don't know what it is that you've made the, the ceiling out of, but as you walk in, it looks like you're underneath the surface of the water. Yeah, so that was one of our lockdown projects, actually, because we couldn't ha we didn't have groups, uh, school groups. Mm -hmm. So it was one of the few times where we could actually do a major change to our facility without worrying about coordinating between school groups. But yeah, the idea was that when the school groups visit and they come in through our pup entrance, that they, they arrive and the first kind of area where they stand is, it looks like the shores of False Bay. So they've got the brightly coloured um, beach huts, which are actually just cladding for our water tanks. And then we've got, the, so it's like a sandy shore. And then you start to see the rocks where they've got, they're painted with murals. And you can see the different types of seaweeds and algae on the rocks. And then also like limpets and barnacles, everything's been painted on those rocks. And then as they slowly start to move into the centre, that you see the, the depth zones increase and you can see the different animals and plants that you would you would find at those different depths and as you say the roof <laughs> the roof is actually um, sadly one of the few things that we couldn't use out use from recycled materials but it's made to look like the water surface so when you're when you're walking on the ground which is also tiled to look like the sea floor <laughs> the surface above you it looks like you'd be looking up and mm -hmm. into the so that you're under the water yeah so that's where these kids come in for the first time and then you go in the back door and there's uh, like a touch pool with uh, with different sea creatures in it and there's all kinds of activities for them to do in the centre. It's such a, such a cool place. And I walked in and was like, this is an amazing office. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> but what is the, so you mentioned school groups there and obviously it's called the Shark Education Centre, but what is your like core mission at the SEC? Yeah, so essentially we we aim to connect people to the ocean through experiential education programmes. And we do that in order to nurture awareness, encourage environmentally responsible actions and to develop a healthy respect for sharks. But yeah, to kind of help them fall in love with the ocean so that they will be inspired to protect it. And I remember from your talk at Sharks International, you were mentioning that you have like different lengths of programs as well? Yeah, the majority of people, and we have like school groups, so we work with school groups and other groups, but school groups would normally come to us during the school week um, and normally mornings. So most mornings we're busy with a group between 30 and 
60 kids at a time. Yeah, we've got two classrooms, but it does require, we've also got quite a large team to manage all the children. (laughs) So we normally do a shortish three hour program in the morning that we offer. And that would just be a once off where we see that group of kids once, and then maybe again in a couple of years. But we also do what I would frame in the bigger picture, medium term programs, where we'd work with the kids over, over 10 weeks. And those would be things like maybe taking kids. So for example, we've got our C school program where we're working with a local school at the moment in Colby and we piloted this I think the last year was the first year for us and that's mostly it's a primary school so it's mostly crafts based activities and they do a term on the rocky shore and then a term on the um, on sharks and they've just started the sharks term actually just now this week and they are so excited about the sharks (laughs) which is really cute (laughs) and then we've also got our marine explorers program so that's actually we started that in 2013 and so long before my time and it has changed slightly in terms of the program that we offer but at the moment now we we offer it to high school students and that involves taking them snorkeling over those the course of 10 weeks the same group of kids goes out each week and also so there's several conservation-based lessons in that as well. Um, so yeah, those are some of the experiences. But we've also got things like community-led programs where we've got community ambassadors, and we call them our ocean ambassadors, and they are in different communities at the moment. And they, they're responsible for organising community events, um, mostly centred around beach cleanups, but also talks and things as well. So but really to find people within the communities that are relatable and also it's much more sustainable that way. And then, but speaking of speaking of the kids that come to your centre, a lot of the the children that you work with are, you know, despite living in quite close proximity, they can be quite disconnected from the ocean, and they face. We've talked about this before, but they they face many challenges, you know, outside of envir- environmental issues. Um, and I just wondered if you could, you know, talk a little bit about that and how how you approach marine conservation education with mm. those kids mm. yeah so as you say they, they they might live within i don't know two or three kilometers from the ocean but sometimes they'll only visit the beach once or twice a year normally around the christmas period so those kids might have very little connection with nature so either actually of a blue or a green variety so sometimes there's very little green spaces around them as well so their connection with with nature is very is very low and um, so they really don't know much about the ocean. Some of them just think actually um, that it's just the surface and that there's nothing below. So they see, they might have seen the surface of the water, but they can't even begin to imagine what lives underneath. Um, Like they know that there's fish there, but they, sometimes there's a disconnect between how that fits together. So yeah, I mean, when we work with these schools, sometimes there's a little bit of not disinterest, but they're not—they're uh, kind of not as intrigued as we would hope they would be um, when they're learning something new. Yeah, we start off very slowly, but to then just show them kind of the awe, the wonder that is that we have in our oceans, and hope that we can entice them to fall in love with it. Mm. But then, as you say, yeah, again, they—they also have lots of other issues, and how we, can we give them something else to? think about and to to love when they've got so many other things that are happening um, in their lives. I mean, for example, some of the kids that we have seen before, they only get their meals at school. So they Mm -hmm. might not have had breakfast in the morning before they come to us. They don't sometimes have access to running water in their homes. Sometimes they don't have a safe space to live or have parents and guardians that um, can look after them. So yeah, it's 
it's something that, I mean, I don't think we really have the right answers for it, but we just have to try and do what we can and to try and share the work that we do while being understanding that they have other more pressing priorities of them. Yeah, yeah, because I think one thing that we talked about with At Sharks International was we were talking about eco-anxiety in kids. Um, And one thing you said that really stuck with me was that they haven't got to the point of eco-anxiety yet because there's so much other stuff going on for them to worry about that they just haven't quite got to that point where eco-anxiety is even featuring. Mm. Um, We're going to talk about this a little bit later on about coming to like calls for action, but you must have to frame that with that in mind, which must be quite challenging, actually. Um, To be honest, I'm also, I don't do the most of the teaching uh, on the day-to-day. I have a great team of teachers that do it, and um, so I also don't want to speak for them, but I do have a wonderful team that do everything they can. And also, the team are, I mean, I'm a foreigner in South Africa, but my team are all South Africans, and many of them have grown up in these communities. So they also know the reality of, of these kids' lives and how many of them have lived them themselves. So yeah, they, they really are the best, the best team to, yeah. to kind of help these kids mm-hmm. without pushing things down their throats yeah. <laughs> and making them more anxious, as, as you say. I mean, it must be, it must vary quite widely, but how do you find the kids respond when they're learning about the ocean for the first time. So a lot of the kids, especially because we are working predominantly with under-resourced communities, these are not kids that have had lots of storybooks at home and so my mum kept a lot of my old storybooks when I was little. She shipped them all out to me. I think she had eventually had enough of having um, our stuff in her house. Um, So I got a whole shipment recently and all the kids' books. But I mean, even if I look at the the how stories have changed since I was a kid and okay, so I'm a little bit, um, I'm now 40. Um, so it was a while ago. But like nowadays, if I look at the books my kids have, and you can buy in shops nowadays, it's all like smiley shark this and friendly shark like this and that kind of story. Whereas when I was growing up, there weren't that many of those stories. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. as commonplace. The kids that we're working with, they haven't seen the smiley shark stories and they haven't seen the friendlier shark versions and heard heard that side of the of the story. Mm-hmm. So they only hear things about sharks from the news or from family members. Yeah, sometimes we have we don't exactly have the kids that are fascinated by sharks, like where you have the kids that are either having a dinosaur or a shark phase. We don't really have those kids coming to us mm-hmm. from those under-resourced communities. So a lot of them are terrified of sharks when they come in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of just trying to show them, sure, you can still be scared of sharks, but let's help you understand them a little bit more. Um, so it's just kind of sharing some of the cool facts about mm-hmm. sharks and how amazing they are um, and how long they've been around and why they're so important that we hope to kind of change some of those misperce- misconceptions. Yeah. And the kids that you take in the water, so when you take them snorkeling for the first time, do you have quite a similar reaction in that there's still you know, that element of fear there? Yeah, I mean, one important consideration here in South Africa is that there are a lot of cultural beliefs um, linked mm-hmm. to the ocean. Mm-hmm. And so for many of the South African cultures, they believe that the ancestors live in the water, their ancestors. Right. So there's a big, um, actually a barrier where people don't want to put their faces in the water because it's mm-hmm. it's breaking into kind of the ancestors space. So mm-hmm. it's not necessarily just about fear, but also about kind of breaking the cultural traditions. Yeah. Obviously, also, some people are scared of, of getting into that 
into that space and also because a lot of children don't learn to swim here they are terrified of the water some of them so actually for our snorkeling program we only take children that can swim but it's a spectrum <laughs> so some can swim but are still a bit nervous of it we have had kids before that have not wanted to put their face in the water for snorkeling which is challenging because the whole hope is that by snorkeling they're obviously seeing the animals under the water and actually experiencing it and also that they are able to relax enough to enjoy it um, so if they can't put their faces in the water, then it's it's very tricky to get to that point. I can imagine, but I think I think that's also a really good point in that you know not every, as we've already said, not every child has access to the water, um, or is able to go snorkeling. But there are ways, you know, even if they don't want to put their head in the water, there are ways to explore the ocean with them without that element to it. So I think one amazing thing that you've done with the shark education center is they don't have to you know they don't have to get wet to mm. see the life that's there yeah. you know you've got the, the the murals on the walls and you've got all the books and the the touch pools and things so and then obviously you know some some kids who are so far away from the ocean they can't get to it there are still ways that they can learn about the, the life yeah. around them yeah but yeah there's a lot of barriers there and you also want them to have fun as well, which is such an important part of education. And I was interested to know like how you build, because you're working with a you know full spectrum of kids right from primary up to high school. And how do you build play into your programs? Mm. So yeah, I mean, play, it's, there's actually very few definite, clear definitions of what play actually is. <laughs> so I think a lot of people associate play with young children, but actually, I mean, even playing a sport as an adult is a form of play. So yeah, kind of a hobby or something like that can also be a, a, be a, a playful exercise. But I also believe that everyone can play and everyone, if everyone finds it in themselves, then Sure, you may feel a little bit silly as an adult <laughs> trying to play, but um, I feel like it's really important and it's such a good base for learning. The way that we incorporate play depends on the age of our target audience that we're working with at the time. Um, so for primary school kids who are much more playful, kind of by nature, comes a lot more easily to them. We do lots of different things. So we, we try and have as many uh, games in our activities as possible. Yeah, I mean, even things like incorporating something like role play, where we pretend they're different animals on the rocky shore and someone's the waves, someone's the sun, someone's the wind. We had to stop that one during COVID though. <laughs> That was it was quite a fun exercise, but yeah, COVID. Nobody nobody was allowed to blow all over the children <laughs> for obvious reasons. It seems like the role of the wind is just to literally blow on everybody else. <laughs> Not COVID safe. No, exactly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, then obviously, so then there's there's free play and then there's un, there's structured play. And so for most of the time, we would be doing structured play in the Shark Centre. So we would be guiding the play in some way. And so, yeah, it could be, it, it could include something like rock pool bingo um, or shark bingo. We have a few games like that. <laughs> then we had a treasure hunt game around the Shark Centre where they had to find different facts and kind of piece things together and work as a team. Team learning is really nice for play because it's kind of the, when they share ideas and share kind of learning then we find it's much more it's it sticks much better but even things like puppetry I know Wade was telling you about the puppet show yeah, um, earlier so, so yeah just exploring exploring stories even storytelling yeah those are all great ways um, for young young people to be involved um, so you sent some of your staff on a course yes to was... learn about 
puppetry and that's its role in storytelling. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that, that was earlier this year. They did a they did a workshop on it, a five day workshop. They were also looking at the um, local cultures and how mm-hmm. how they can incorporate indigenous stories into like modern the modern world, but also how to kind of include science in it but to still find something that will stick and the kids will remember those stories but yeah I mean it could be anything like even on the beach like we can do sand sculptures even sack races we've had kids doing sack races they have to answer they have to pick up something off the floor the right answer to a question and then run and then the team's waiting on the other side so yeah I mean anything like those kind of things even like so snorkeling also could be a form of play one of our favorite snorkeling sites they have a a water slide (laughs) which normally the normally the snorkeling session ends with kids going flying down the water slide <laughs> amazing i i want to come and do one of these can i come and do a sea school please <laughs> sounds yeah. so fun but it but it is so important like even as an adult like you need to you're always going to learn best in an environment which you find fun yeah right um and yeah it's such an important element especially when you're talking about you know when you go on later to talk about uh you know quite complex for want of a better word like unfun issues um, and I know you talked we talked a little bit before about a game you play called is it race for survival survive the century survive the century yeah, yeah. so that one we we normally do with high school kids it's actually it's an internet-based game um a lady called Sam I'm gonna get her naming wrong Sam Bixinger I think it is created the game and there's also a book version of it so if they don't have access to tablets or anything then they can play it through the book but basically it's almost like a role play and um, so the kids have to we normally group the kids together and then they're making they have to make decisions and see how far they can survive into the future mm-hmm. so they it's kind of a safe environment for them to make choices mm-hmm. and it can be from public health to politics to the environment to economics yeah and they've kind of got to make decisions and see how far they get mm-hmm. um, and what situation how each of those kind of elements have fared based on their decisions mm-hmm. Um, so that's a really nice way for them to play with kind of big consequences and see what's most important. Mm, yeah, because my, my research group at Sterling specialise in actual research games okay. like that. So you can get like different stakeholders to play uh, to, to play a game and they kind of understand the decision making process of, say, someone from a different interest group or or even just members of the general public trying to understand like how... Uh, how complex these decisions often are um, and just how much you have to consider when you're kind of trying to make those choices. There's limited studies done on how effective it is, but it definitely seems like it's it works mm. and um, it helps people to kind of see things from a very different perspective without the actual consequences of having to make that decision. Um, so yeah, it's really cool. I'll have to play it. <laughs> I've never played it. But I mean, there's lots of examples nowadays where, I mean, we gamify everything. Like like we count the number of steps we do, we record everything now and, and make a game of it. Like if you do so many steps, then you get a free coffee or whatever. I don't know, there's a game, there's a scheme like that in South Africa. I don't know whether it's reached, it's in the UK. The, those kind of things, as all as a game, like looking for the reward. And if you can, and I know of other, other organizations like WWF in South Africa mm-hmm. developed a game around their sustainable seafood initiative, yes. um, which is also really cool. And those kind of things, adding that element of gaming where, I mean, a lot of kids nowadays are into gaming. Mm-hmm. Well, those that can afford the equipment and things, but um, it's really, it's, popular it's got great appeal for younger Mm. generations in particular 
And I just wanted to pick up on something that you said a little bit earlier, and feel free not to answer this if you don't want to, but there's also quite a lot of history to Cork Bay, including, you know, a very strong fishing culture and sort of associated tensions with that. Um, and I was interested to know, is that something that you and the team have had to navigate, especially when you're doing things like community outreach? Yeah, I mean, so um, it's quite right. There, There's a lot of history around most of the areas in South Africa. I mean, there was a Group Areas Act where a lot of people were displaced um, and certain areas were designated as white and certain areas as coloured and certain areas as black. And Colk Bay in particular, where the shark centre sits, was designated as a white only area. Mm. There were exceptions made for the fishing community and for a few people in the fishing community, but the majority of people that were here originally were moved out of the area. And there's a lady um, who does some work and she takes people on historical tours. She is a, I think she's a third generational um, Colt Bay fishing fisher person. She's not actively fishing now, but her, her family were, were fisher people. And she, she leads these tours and shows people the history of Colt Bay. And I mean, yeah, it is something that we have to consider. Um, we also had an honours student last year or the year before from UCT, from University of Cape Town, who looked at the communities that don't visit us. As so communities that are quite close to us that don't maybe come to us mm -hmm. and the reasons behind that and whether there was a socio-ethnographic reason for that. Because it was a white area, whether that made people feel uncomfortable coming into a white area when they were not previously classified as white. And she did find that there was an element of that. So yeah, that's obviously something that we need to be considerate of. But yeah, we're not going to be, we're unfortunately not going to be able to move the shark centre. <laughs> so it's just about finding ways to help people feel comfortable coming to visit us because really coming to the shark centre is an experience in itself. And if we go into the schools, then that's, mm -hmm. it's not as rich an experience um, that the children will then have. So I just really hope that we can encourage as many people come to come to us. But obviously I do understand that there are barriers to that. Yeah, yeah. And, and kind of we're kind of going on to a question that I've got a bit later about the things to be aware of you know when you're creating an education program or, or community outreach or anything like that but quite often there is a lot of historic there are historical things that might not necessarily seem connected to conservation that can affect how people will participate or whether they will participate as well I just thought it was quite interesting to to touch on that um, but I wanted to talk now a little bit so we talked about the SEC and I wanted to talk a little bit about inspiring the next generation on a more broader sense. So, you know, the kids that, that you work with or kids, you know, around the world are learning about how amazing the sea is, how amazing nature is. But then the next step is obviously to tell them about the issues that are affecting this place that they've just, you know, learned to love, um, which we know can cause anxiety and I know we've kind of already touched on the fact that a lot of the kids that you work with are maybe only just coming to that point now or haven't quite reached it yet but eco-anxiety is definitely a thing that's rising around the world especially you know in western countries and I was quite interested to get your thoughts on what some of the strategies that you take to teach children about these threats while still kind of maintaining that that sense of hope so not instilling that sense of dread that seems to to give 
children equal anxiety, which um, which I can imagine must be quite hard. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're still kind of trying to find the right strategy for this. I mean, it is such a difficult, it's such a difficult one and there aren't that many studies out there <laughs> indicating the best way to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, I've heard everything from working with social workers who obviously have a lot of experience dealing with trauma about how you can kind of navigate those skills to get over trauma mm. or to um, recover from trauma. Because essentially we are yeah, telling them to fall in love with something and then saying, okay, but we're going to take it away now. And that, that loss, that grief that comes with that um, can be huge. Yeah, I mean, we, we try to be hopeful and also to give them constructive calls to action. So that's a big thing for us, especially to be realistic for the target audience. So, I mean, everyone's heard about the, I mean, when I was growing up, it was the three R's. Now it's like the five or the seven R's. I've, I've lost track. <laughs> like those kind of things. I mean, recycling for many of the kids that we work with, there's not the infrastructure in their communities to allow them to recycle. So it's really just in terms of strategies, we have to be careful that we are not asking them to do something that they physically cannot do. When you don't have recycling options, you can't be saying that that's something that they should work on um, when you're a 12-year-old kid. And so it's really got to kind of, we've got to know the community as well as, as well as we can so that we can suggest the best things that they can do so that they feel that they're part of the solution as well. Um, I mean, obviously, recycling is only one element of that. And one of the best things that we say is even if you feel that you can't do anything, you can talk about it. You can share the, the facts that you know, that you've learned today um, with us at the Shark Centre. You can start to explore this with your friends and your family. And even though that feels like a small thing, just spreading, spreading that word and spreading that wonder, that can, do, that can do so many things. It's one of the most powerful things that you can do is yeah. use your voice. Um, and that's something that you know, everyone, like you said, everyone can do regardless of where they are in the world or, or what their background is. Or what, how many resources they have. Yeah, exactly. And I know as well, it's obviously, you know, it can be quite scary to do that. But I do think there's so many incredible young people now who are standing up on a world stage. So like there's just been a, a load of kids at the last COP, COP27 in Egypt. There are so many kids that stood up and talked there. Obviously Greta, Vanessa as well who have shown young people that this is something they can be powerful by just using their voice. Yeah. I can imagine it's quite, that can be quite uplifting in a way and something that everyone can do. And it doesn't have to be on the UN stage. <laughs> That's a very extreme, extreme example. But like you said, just talking to your friends and talking to your family about all these things is, is just quite accessible step yeah I've, i heard a campaign once that they they did about around seat belts and parents using seat belts and kids they taught the kids about seat belt use and how protection that it gives and and then the feedback to the from the kids to the parents if your kids tell you off about something <laughs> then you're much more likely to do it if your kids call you out on doing something wrong so yeah i mean even if the if the kids can share some messages with their parents then that's that's a great step yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's very important to feel that you can do something because I think that's where that sort of sense of hopelessness comes from, right? You yeah. feel like you feel, especially when you're a young person as well, I think you can feel quite powerless mm. because you can't vote. You're not at the age where you can vote and you're not at the age where you're working. Or But yeah, there's social media. There's such a power in social media. Almost everyone has a phone now or, you know, you can have a conversation with somebody. 
yeah, yeah. they're really easy but I already met one today <laughs> but I wondered if any of the children or young people young adults that you work with at the center have actually then gone on to do marine conservation or kind of have the uh, or, or are wanting to go kind of in that direction so I would say the some of the kids that we work with on our longer term programs so for example our marine explorers there's a lot of kids that are really excited about the ocean from that so that's it's really great to see I mean there are a lot of pressures for the kids that we're working with so sometimes we haven't actually seen someone get into university to study marine conservation or marine biology yet mm -hmm. since I've been working at the Shark Centre that we've worked with closely I hope there are people out there that we don't know about but I mean I know there have been some examples where kids have been really passionate and wanted to go on and study but then perhaps not had the funds or not had the guidance during their during their high school careers to choose correct subjects mm -hmm. to get into study marine biology for example you need a really you need physics and you also need a high level of maths and some of the kids just weren't weren't shown the path while they were at school so there's that element um, but then there's also a lot of the girls we work with they actually are expected to look after younger siblings so they when they finish school then that's kind of often becomes their role or they're expected to start working as soon as possible to start helping the family financially and then also that of the children that are able to go to university some of them despite their passions for a certain subject are often encouraged to maybe go for something like law or medicine because it's it is more likely to lead to a better paid job. So, yeah, I mean, I really hope that there are people getting into these careers and at the very, not the worst, but the at the very least, I hope that there are people in other careers and even if they go on to study law, then maybe they can become environmental lawyers. And even if you have people that have gone into other, other careers but have that love for the ocean, that still means a lot. So I know there are a lot of kids that have, have left us with love in their hearts. Yeah, so. And that's one of the most important things yeah but of course you've got your your interns as well some of which have have become staff yeah so um logan um one of our team she was a she she was a conservation leader through her high school and towards the end of her primary school that was a program that was run by one of our partner organizations um Nature Connect, an organisation that we work with, and she, yeah, she became just started as an intern, as you say, and then went on to um, become a junior educator with us. And then also Wade, who you met earlier, he he started off as a as an intern through his university degree, um, where he was studying marine science, and now is also a junior educator. So. Yeah, they, there are there are success stories, and and if they also are, because they're so young, they're so relatable to the kids, and they they really have been through that process. Yeah. They've been through childhood much much more recently than I have, <laughs> um, so they know they know what those kids want to hear and want to do. So they've got the ways to, and they've got the energy as well. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I said, they're always smiling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's great. Yeah. It's great. And we kind of touched on this earlier, but sort of as educators, is there anything that you think we need to be aware of or anything that we need to consider when we're teaching children about the environment and encouraging action, especially in current climate? Yeah, I mean, I think it does. I think, as we've talked about already, to try and be as positive as, pos as possible. To, so to keep the hope, to kind of give clear calls to action, I think those are important. And it can be something as little as sharing your voice. 
but then also to try and give them some to give them some power through those calls to action but also let them use their voice in terms of how they explore the issue so let them think outside the box let them drive some of the the learning around it so mm -hmm. it's not just it's one way from the teachers the educators to the to the learners but also that's a two-way flow of information so we can just be sometimes facilitators it doesn't necessarily have to be a one-way flow of information that leads me on really nicely to my next question it's a really lovely segue um which was because we've talked so much about you know educating young people but is there anything that we can learn from the younger generation especially when it comes to you know nature and conservation yeah definitely i mean i think a lot of people learn from greater Thunberg as well I, and I think they are going to come up with all these new ideas I think they're coming up with them already and I think if we if we can't learn from them then it's very sad um, so I think we should always be open to learning from children I think it's really refreshing and it's what keeps us also hopeful yeah. um, if we can learn from them So we're coming on to our last two questions. Um, so my final, one of my final questions was, what are your plans for the centre moving forward? I mean, you're doing so much already and that seems like a daft question to ask because I'm just so inspired by the work that you and the team do. I think it's awesome and you do so much. But do you have any kind of plans for the future? Yeah, so I mean, in terms of our building and our space itself, we are planning to make some of our classrooms bigger, but also more interactive um, and to make one of the classes kind of more into a lab space so they can do some practical experiments and and try out some different things and pretend to be a shark scientist for a day kind of thing. So yeah, that's one of our plans. But also, I mean, we're looking at increasing our, into um, our education program, our offerings so that we can get longer term programs in place. Because mm -hmm. really, I mean, we're putting um, monitoring evaluation and learning into place now but my gut feel is that the longer longer term the programs are the deeper the impact mm -hmm. and so we are looking at potentially a longer immersive program for high school students and um, but maybe to follow their entire high school career um, and kind of see how see whether we can we can get you those statistics um, for the for the marine conservationists at a later stage um, yeah I think that would be amazing to be able to do. Speaking of that like I really resonated with what you said earlier as well about you know there might not be kids that necessarily are going on to do marine science but they will this is kind of what we need though is we need people to take those principles and that love of the ocean into other sectors so things like say if they are going into business or they are going into law or even just in their everyday lives, just having that base love for the ocean is just so, so, so important because it's all connected. And we need people in those sectors who are more connected to the ocean, who can come up with those really innovative solutions and come yeah. up with the laws and, and everything. So I think you'll, you'll have had more of an impact than you think, even just getting the love of the ocean into their, mm. into their heads from a very early age. But we only have one, one question left. Yeah, We've come... It is a hard one. We've come to the end. And I don't know if you've actually settled on your answer yet. <laughs> I was going to just decide as we went along and I still don't think I'm there. <laughs> but it is. If you could be any species of shark, ray or skate in the world, what would you be and why? Okay, so I'm going to give you an answer. Okay. So I'm going to choose a South African species and I'm going to go with the... Well, it's not just South African, but you find it in South African waters. I'm going to go with the broad-nosed seven-gill cow shark. Nice. 
because it's been around for quite a while. It's one of the older species um, in terms of evolution. I'm not saying that I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there is an element of that. <laughs> but it would be quite but cool. <laughs> like we've had we've had someone that's had Greenland shark on the podcast before because they could they live a long time, so you yeah, can see. It doesn't true. necessarily mean that you're. You're 250 years old. <laughs> but I also I also kind of think of them a little bit as kind of the dogs of the sea, kind of like, they're kind of quite like puppy-like almost for me. And yeah, I quite like dogs. <laughs> I have an affiliation with dogs. And they are, they are one of my favourite species of sharks to dive with. So I think I'm going to go with that. And they get to hang around kelp forests, which... Yep would be a nice existence I think I think that's a great answer <laughs> I do but anyway it has been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast I'm so glad that we could make this happen and that we could do it in person as well Yay. which has been so nice <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the podcast and be as always we will leave links to everything in the show notes because you've got the shark education center has an instagram page and a twitter as well Twitter, yep facebook i think we even got a tiktok trying to stay with the young generations yeah. <laughs> and if you are you know i know we have listeners from south africa so if you are ever in coke bay feel free to pop in it's the coolest place just make sure you make a booking first <laughs> in case we have any school groups okay. <laughs> make a booking first and then go see the cool yes, place yeah. thanks <laughs> but yeah thank you so much Clover. it's been so fun to have you on thanks Isla it's been really great the world of sharks podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation it was hosted and produced by me Isla Hodgson our amazing visuals are by Jamie Silver our beautiful logo is by Nicola Poulos and the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. A huge thank you to Clover for taking the time to come onto the podcast and thank you for all of the team at the Education Centre for hosting me. I still wish I was there right now hanging out with you guys and watching the sea out of the window. If you would like to find out more about the Shark Education Centre, I will leave links in the show notes as to how you can visit the centre if you're able to, if you're in Cape Town. Or you can also find them on social media. They are at Shark Center on both Instagram and TikTok. And they do do some pretty, pretty good TikToks, I must say. And as always, thank you at home for listening. If you want to get in touch, want to suggest a topic for us to cover, or you just want to say hi, please feel free to get in touch by emailing isla at saveourseas.com. Or you can find out more about the work of the foundation by following us on social media. We are at Save Our Seas Foundation on Instagram and at Save Our Seas on Twitter. Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>